How do you treat people? How do we treat different kinds of people in different kinds of settings? You know, we evaluate and we treat people certain ways based on who they are and what social setting we're in. We treat our elders differently than we treat our children. We treat our boss differently than we treat our co-workers. And we, in marriage, treat our spouse differently than we would, say, a casual acquaintance or a friend. I know in my marriage, uh, Casey is, is very aware of how, uh, how I treat her in different social settings. For instance, when I'm on the phone with her and I know that no one is listening, I can say things like, Well, hello, baby, I love you so much, I miss you so much today. But then, when I know that Michelle or Colleen are in the office with me, and she calls me, my wife calls me, she goes, hi, honey, I love you, and I say, yes, what can I do for you? (laughs) We treat people differently depending on who they are and what social setting we are in. Well, today... I want to ask us a question. I want to ask us as a church a question. In particular, this question concerns the needy, the poor, the destitute. The title of my message today is Defend the Destitute. Defend the Destitute. And the question I want to ask of you today is how do you treat the needy? How do you treat the needy? This is going to be a a topical study this morning. We're going to survey a number of scriptures, and that's uh, not uh, what we normally do here at Coast. We uh, we appreciate teaching verse by verse and going uh, uh, expositionally through a text, but today I wanted to, to change things up a bit. Today I wanted to take us through a variety of scriptures and answer this question. How Do we treat the needy? Do we treat them as inferior? James chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Notice in the screen above you. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. Say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Do we treat them as inferior? Do we ignore them? Do we ignore the needy? Mark 10, 46-48 Then they came to Jericho and Jesus went out of Jericho with His disciples in a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, Timaeus sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him, to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Do we ignore them? Do we ignore the needy? Do we judge them? Do we judge them? John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now as Jesus passed by, He saw a man who was blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? that he was born blind. 
do we judge them? Do we treat them as inferior? Do we ignore them? Do we judge them? You know, in the first century, there were a number of reasons why the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sick, there were a number of reasons why these kinds of people were ignored, were treated as inferior, and were judged as sinners. And that reason is what is known in, in historical Jewish sources as, as a phrase called retributive punishment. Retributive punishment. What is retributive punishment? It's the idea that the destitute, the poor, the sick, they find themselves in this situation because of sin. Because of sin. Either their sin or the sin of their parents. How did this notion of retributive punishment develop? Well, there's a number of uh, things that we could point to that would elicit this kind of worldview in the first century. But primarily, it was a misinterpretation of God's Word. They would isolate on certain kinds of texts that would speak of God's judgment on generations and generations and generations and fail to couple that teaching with biblical teaching on mercy and grace and forgiveness to those who turn to God in faith and obey Him. God, the God of the Old Testament, contrary to what we see in the worldview of the first century religious leaders, the God of the Old Testament was not a God of retributive punishment. It was not always the case that a person was poor or sick as a result of sin. And yet we see even the disciples of Jesus in John chapter 9, verse 2. Even the disciples of Jesus, His own followers, were so influenced by this notion of retributive punishment that they asked the question, when passing by a blind man, they looked upon Him and instead of helping Him, they turned to Jesus and said, Jesus... Uh, what uh, what uh, took place that this man was born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? The irony. Imagine the irony of, of that question. To avoid helping him and instead be so entrenched in this notion of retributive punishment. Sadly, the vast majority of the first century religious leaders and occasionally Jesus' own disciples, failed to realize and recognize God's tremendous, tremendous concern for the poor and the needy and the sick. They failed to recognize that, note this, helping and defending the poor, the orphan, the widow and the sick was one of the most fundamental objectives of Jesus. Let me say that again. Helping and defending the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the sick was one of the most fundamental objectives of Jesus when He came to this earth. I want to walk you through a few passages in relationship to Jesus and the poor. Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Jesus had entered a synagogue and He was given the Isaiah scroll. And this is what he chose to read 
of all of Isaiah, he chose this. Notice verse 16. So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up to read. And when he had, was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, notice this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Helping and defending the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the sick was one of the most fundamental objectives of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist had already baptized Jesus and he found himself in prison. And yet, as time went by, he began to get confused. He wasn't sure, was this in fact the Messiah? Was Jesus in fact the Messiah or should we look for another one? Notice Jesus' response. Matthew 11, verses 3 to 5. John sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Helping and defending the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sick, was one of the most fundamental objectives of Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus, at the onset of His teaching, in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, made some remarkable statements about the poor. He said that the kingdom that He was bringing with Him was especially designed for these kinds of people. Luke 6, verses 20 and 21. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Helping and defending the poor the orphan, the widow, and the sick was one of the most fundamental objectives of Jesus Christ. And so I urge us today, we who claim to be followers of, of God, we who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, I'm urging all of us not to make the same mistake that was made by the religious leaders and even Jesus' own disciples from time to time. I'm urging all of us to pay very close attention to what God has to say about the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the sick, the destitute. In particular, I'm urging us all to ask this question. What would God have us do on behalf of the destitute? What would God have us do on their behalf? I want to offer some very simple answers. This is... Uh, by no means a complex study. 
These are simple answers. These are simple guidelines and principles that God's Word speaks of, both in the Old and the New Testament. And I want to identify some of these and help us to practically apply them as we attempt as a church family and as individuals and as a community to defend the destitute. First, from the Old Testament, I wanted to read, in answering the question, what would God have us do for the needy? Notice Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verses 18 and 19. I wanted to walk you through two Old Testament texts that are of, very, that are of note as we examine God's intent for the poor. Notice Deuteronomy 24, 18 and 19. It says this, But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. Verse 19. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And turning over to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Notice this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you glean every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. A couple of very similar Old Testament texts here from the Old Testament law. What do they mean? What exactly was God intending as He spoke through Moses these words of instruction? I think very simply we can draw a couple of answers from this. The first is this. What, can we, what would God have us do for the needy? The first is this. Be proactive and not merely reactive in your benevolence. In both texts, we noticed that you are not to utterly reap your field, God says. In other words, you're not to take every tiny corner of the field and every sheaf and every, every piece of the harvest. You're not to take all of it and hoard it unto yourself. Instead, God says, you are to be proactive. You are to be mindful of the fact that there will come some in your life that will have needs. And thus, in your resources, in your capacity, you should have some apportioned for the needy. You should have some of what you've been given, some of your good fortune apportioned for the needy. Be proactive in this is the principle I want to stress. You see, a reactive benevolence is commendable. When we are asked by someone, can you help me, and we meet that need, that's commendable, but that's reactive. We are reacting to their request. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we're noticing here, we are to be proactive. We are to be thinking ahead of time and thinking, yes, I'm going to store some of that harvest for the needy. I'm going to store some of that harvest for the stranger, which in that time uh, was much like an illegal alien today. The stranger in the Old Testament is what we might call an illegal alien today. I'm going to store that part of the harvest for the widow, for the poor, for the needy. 
God is so much greater honored when we are proactive in benevolence. And secondly, a principle we can learn from this, which is very uh, very noticeable, is share your resources with the needy. Share your resources with the needy. Be proactive in your benevolence. Plan ahead of time and not merely react when asked for help. And be willing to share of your resources. In the Old Testament, of course, the resources were from the field. Uh, the vast majority were farmers. We're in the discipline of agriculture. What are our resources today? They include things like money, food, shelter, clothing, employment, if we have the opportunity to offer employment, perhaps, perhaps training, if we have a skill set that we can offer someone to train them, to help them along. There are a variety of ways in which we can take a literal instruction of God in the Old Testament and use it in a figurative way as we apply it in the 21st century. In the Old Testament, they were to give of their food, the, part, the portion of their harvest. And here in the 21st century, well, we have a number of things. As I said, money, clothing, food, shelter, employment, training. These are two very simple principles from the Old Testament on how we can assist the needs of the needy. And now that we've surveyed those Old Testament texts, I want to turn to a couple of New Testament texts. But before I do, before we turn uh, to the teaching of the New Testament on the poor, uh, I wanted to discuss uh, something a little bit different. I wanted to introduce one of our texts by discussing dining customs, table customs of the first century. Table customs of the first century. Now, as you know... uh, there are a variety of table customs around the world. Uh, here in, in the United States, uh, you go to dinner and uh, what, it takes maybe 45 minutes to an hour to eat your meal, get your bill, and get on out of there, right? We're pretty quick in uh, the United States. If you go to Europe, you will be hard-pressed to see your bill within two and a half hours. You'll be sitting there and you will be enjoying your meal and uh, you'll be sitting there and waiting and waiting for the bill as Americans, and it won't come because in Europe, especially in Italy, uh, Leela would know. She's laughing. I see her laughing. In Italy, it takes at least three hours to eat dinner. At least three hours. Is that right, Leela? That's right. How about in your home? Is it three hours? No. Okay. Good. Just checking. Okay. Three hours to prepare. Wow. That's good. I'm coming over for dinner tonight. Table customs are different, depending on the culture. We get in and get out. Europeans, boy, they wine and dine them for a long time. And in the first century, there were some really, really interesting table customs. Uh, a couple things to, to, to take note. First, you would dine only, only within your own social class. The poor would be with the poor. The middle class would be with the middle class. The elite would only dine with the elite. Secondly, uh, the seating chart. There was a very strategic seating chart in the, old, in the uh, first century. Those who were of highest honor would sit closest to the host. And those who were still, still of that class but not so much of the highest honor, well, they would be at the back of the table. They would be at the kitty table, as uh, my parents used to put me at when I was uh, a kid eating Thanksgiving dinner. How many of you ate at the kitty table? 
How many of you still eat at the kitty table? A few of you. So now we see here that, that social class and seating charts, and, and there, was, there was such a structure to the table customs of the first century. Now Jesus was invited to many of these gatherings. His invitation was not due to his social class. It was due to the, the religious aristocracy's curiosity of who Jesus was. Most certainly not due to his social standing. In fact, these same aristocrats often ridiculed Jesus because they pointed at him and said, look at you, you eat with who? Sinners and tax collectors. That was a, uh, a high insult in their day and age. To eat with sinners and tax collectors was a, was a terrible faux pas. The lowliest of the low. And yet we come to a New Testament text now. We come to Luke chapter 14. I want to read verse 1 to preface where Jesus is, and then I want to skip down to verse 12. Notice what is taking place in this passage. Verse 1 of Luke 14. Now it happened as he went, Jesus, into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. Skipping down to verse 12. Then Jesus also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Now, we might think this is, you know, rather elementary teaching here, but to the ears of the first century Jewish leader, upper-class aristocrat. This was, uh, to put it bluntly, unthinkable. Unthinkable. Wouldn't happen. What you're asking me to do cannot be done in my culture. The parable of Jesus was designed to identify a gaping hole in the mindset of the first century Pharisee. They maintained an I'll-scratch-your-back-if-you-scratch-my-back mentality. And thus, this story of Jesus encouraging the social and religious elite to invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind to dinner, who had no means of repaying the invitation, such teaching cut right to the heart of their culture. In effect, Jesus was calling them to give up of themselves, regardless of what they received in return. Now, I put this text to the far left because I wanted to synthesize it with some earlier teaching of Jesus on the right. Take a look at what he said in Luke chapter 6. Notice this. He says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. You see, the follower of Christ was not to ask the question, how can I benefit from this relationship? That was the question asked by the religious leaders. How can I benefit from this dinner? How can I benefit by inviting this governor so I can get his ear? 
The follower of Jesus Christ was not to ask the question, what kind of return can I get for my sacrifice? What's in it for me? They wanted a premier guest list. A guest list that included the very best and that they might be repaid as they wined and dined their guests. Take a look at what one theologian has to say about John 14. A man by the name of John Noland. I found this very insightful. He says this, The natural guest list is made up of people who, whose company one enjoys. Very true. Along with relatives and those from whom one stands to gain in some way. We are told, however, in Luke 14 to rewrite that guest list for fear that it might give us precisely what it has been drawn up to provide, a reciprocal benefit for our generosity. Such a guest list needs to be replaced by a list consisting of the people who would never be our natural guests and who would have no capacity to return the favor. Then, I might add, and only then, our hospitality will express true generosity of soul and will be like God's own generosity, extended to the most unlikely of people. If the guest list is rewritten, if we heed the words of Jesus in Luke 6 and Luke 14 to love the unlovely, then oddly enough, oddly enough, while we were not seeking reimbursement, while we were not seeking a return for our good deed, while we were not seeking any kind of reward for what we had done in inviting them to dinner, Jesus says, that is exactly what you will receive. Notice the ending of our verses that we had just previously read. Down at the bottom in yellow, verse 14 at the end of Luke 14, He says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And in Luke 6, when you are befriending an enemy, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. See, the irony is, the Pharisees and the religious aristocrats, when they invited to dinner, they were expecting return. They were expecting reward. And Jesus says, the only way you're going to get the return... The only way you're going to get the reward is if you don't expect it and you rewrite your guest list and invite those who are unlovely, who are poor, who are maimed, who are of a different social class than you, who have no means of repaying the invitation. That's the only way you'll get the reward. What does this mean? What, what does this mean? What would God have us do on behalf of the destitute based on what we've read? I would say a couple things. First, of, uh, we've noticed to be proactive, not merely reactive in our benevolence. Secondly, we've understood to share our resources with the needy. And third, avoid keeping the needy at arm's length. I think that it is such a tendency of ours, even in our culture today and in cultures for generations past, to keep the needy at arm's length. Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll write a check, but, uh, well, you know, invite them to dinner? Maybe not. Sure, we might uh, give up of some material good of ours, but to develop a personal relationship with them? Not so much. And that brings me to my fourth point. Share your life, 
and your home. Share your life in your home. Share a meal with the afflicted. Open up your arms and say, I I want to befriend you. I want to get to know you. You're of a different social class. You have some sort of a physical defect. You are are, are poor and, and you are afflicted and you are oppressed, but yet I don't care. I want to love you and I want to share with you my life. I want to invite you to my home. I want you to be a part of my life. I want to serve you. This is the kind of attitude that Jesus requests of us. That he urges us to mimic. Does this mean we don't invite folks over in our own social class? Of course not. Of course not. We do that all the time. We have friends and we want to cultivate those friendships. But Jesus is saying, hey, go the extra mile here. Go the extra mile. When you identify someone who is in need, writing them a check is good. Inviting them to dinner to hand them that check is better. Okay, this is a great list. This is a great Bible list, Neil, but uh, I live in South Orange County. I live in South Orange County, and last I checked, there's not, uh, as I look outside my door, I don't see so many needs. I don't see so many poor. I don't see so many homeless. How can I possibly appropriate and utilize what we've learned today? Well, I want to offer some practical tips here. And these are this is by no means exhaustive. And... Um, and there are a number of opportunities that, that I'm sure you can think of as well, but I wanted to give, I wanted to make this very practical. I wanted us to hear from God's Word, to hear that He wants us to serve the needy, to identify that Jesus, that was one of His primary objectives, to see it in Scripture again and again that this is what we're supposed to do, but moreover, I wanted us to say, and this is how we can do it. What can I do? Very practical. First, invite them to your home. I've already said this, but invite them to your home. Share a meal with them. I think that for most of us, that would already be going uh, uh, out of our comfort zone. Uh, It would be be difficult to invite someone who is homeless over for dinner. I don't discount that. It would be difficult. But yet God uh, God expresses that 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 is something to be honored. Secondly, I brought Marianne up here because... She is meeting the needs of the widow and oftentimes the sick. And I encourage you to visit the Coast Homebound with Marianne Fisher. I encourage you to visit those who cannot make it to Coast and uh, others in our, our church family who are unable to attend regular, with regularity on Sunday. Third, uh, donate a vehicle. Um, the church can accept these kinds of donations. In fact, I know of, I know of a need right now in which we are looking for a vehicle for someone uh, who is in need. And this is uh, something that many organizations do and our church provides as well. You can donate a vehicle to the poor. Fourth, a little more personal participation and local. Go to Camp Allendale, one of our missionaries. They have opportunities for uh, counselors. And they it's a ministry, Robin and Karen Wood, we've supported them for many years. They came out of this church um, they deal with the afflicted and oppressed children, many of whom are orphans or foster kids. And uh, these kids, you listen to their stories and it will make you weep what has happened to them. And they are in desperate, desperate. I cannot express how much need they have for counselors. You can be as young as, as 18, 16, I believe, actually. As young as 16 and, 
as old as you'll get, you can counsel. They are looking for counselors. You can go to their website and click counselors if you're interested. Fifth, I've identified this, though I've uh, personally never participated in it, the Orange County Rescue Mission. Um, I've read a lot about this mission, and I'm very impressed with them. Uh, Their president, uh, Jim Palmer, is a Christian man. And uh, though Coast does not have a, uh, a direct relationship with the OC Rescue Mission, I know that they do good work. You can go to their website and click on volunteer as they meet the needs of the homeless and the poor. And sixth, if you want to get ambitious, you can go overseas. One of which is Murray, Murray and Cheryl Greenwood. They're with uh, uh, SIM in Ecuador. Uh, wonderful missionaries. I've been reading about them more and more, and I am so impressed. I'm so pleased that we are supporting these, these folks. Because Murray and Cheryl are doing great work with the poor and the sick in particular in Ecuador. They are medical missionaries. And they can use those of you who have medical background or those of you who just desire to care for the sick and the afflicted. And you can go to their website and click, How Can I Help? In fact, I have a picture of them right behind me. That's Murray and Cheryl and their family. Uh, I just got done corresponding with them on email. And I, I would really love to see a short-term team head down to Ecuador. You know, we're approaching our annual church meeting. And I'm asking myself um, as we... As we are going into 40 years of ministry at Coast, did you know this is going to be our 40th year of ministry? Praise the Lord. And I'm asking myself one question as we do. How do we evaluate Coast Bible Church? How do we evaluate our church? How do we judge whether or not our church is on the right path? Some of us will judge it by numbers. Undoubtedly we do. We look around and we say, well, we hope there's a little more people in the pews next year. Others of us will judge it by how many people are being saved. You know, How many people are raising their hands after a message believing on the Lord and, and, and how many souls are being won for the kingdom. But I would also urge us, and perhaps most importantly urge us, to ask the question, is Coast Bible Church meeting the needs of the needy? Because you see, Jesus, before He won a spiritual harvest with people, more often than not, He met their physical needs. Let me say that again. Before he won their soul, he usually met their physical need. And so as, as we think of evangelism and think of growing the church and bringing in new believers, remember, step one is meeting their needs. Loving them. Loving the poor. Loving the sick. Loving the widow. The orphan. And when we do that, their heart is wide open. Their heart is wide open to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we meet their physical needs, in so doing, we will be bringing people into the kingdom of God because their hearts will be wide open for Jesus' grace and mercy. Helping and defending the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the sick was one of the most fundamental objectives of Jesus. I urge us all to defend the destitute. May we defend the destitute as a church family. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You that You have met our physical needs. Father, we, many of us, have have been through times of, of poverty, 